Miss Dina has our special. After this special, Brother Andrew, come preach. Michael asked me to preach last Sunday night. Uh, I've been kind of getting the vibe that people are a little bit worried about my long-windedness, I guess. And I don't know what that's all about. Caleb told me just literally seconds after Brother Michael asked me to preach tonight, you have a 15-minute time limit. (laughs) You guys may need to hang on to your hats because we're about to go really, really fast. Uh, And then Chuck graciously agreed to hold my telephone for me. 
And I told him if anybody called, tell him I'll call him back within the half hour. And he said, that includes the invitation song, right? (laughs) So I don't know what all that's about. (laughs) If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And I asked Brother Michael whenever, whenever he first asked me to, to deliver the message this evening. I said, okay, now I, I know we've been talking about, uh, talking about First Peter. I know we've been doing Nehemiah in the morning. Is, is there a particular direction that you want me to go here? Uh, is, there, is there a particular path that you want me to take? And, and Brother Michael said, I really want you to consider, I want you to consider revival. I want you to think about revival. So that's what I started doing. I just started thinking about revival. And the first thought that, that came to my head was just how many different revivals I've been to and been a part of. And, and it's, really, it's really pretty funny because uh, I've been a part of churches that did annual revivals. I've been to churches that do semi-annual revivals. I've been to churches that do revival anytime there's people in the congregation that look like this on Sunday mornings. Uh, I mean, I've been revivaled up. I've been revivaled up. And, and then I started thinking back even further than that, uh, back into my junior high and high school days, and thinking about uh, the teen camps and the youth camps that I had been to. And because I thought, well, that, that's kind of a revival too, I guess. Because at, at least the ones that, that I've been a part of, what it seems like to me, and, and, and this, this was the, the common denominator that I was getting as I was looking back at those different revivals that I had been a part of, was before that revival happened, we obviously had recognized a need for it. There was obviously some reason that we were going to put a special spiritual emphasis on the next week or the next two weeks or the next church service, whatever it was. There was obviously some reason that we were doing this thing called revival, getting out of our normal routine. And my reasoning behind it was it it usually seemed that the church or that certain people were, were in kind of a spiritual slump. And then after that revival, everybody's up, everybody's going, everybody's just gung-ho for Jesus. Whatever God wants me to do, that's the direction that I'm going to. And youth camp and teen camps were very much the same way for me growing up. Uh, I, was a, I was a part of a, a decent-sized decent teen group growing up. We averaged about 60 kids on Sunday night, and we took 50 to, um, to a teen camp, to the last, the last youth camp that I attended, took 50 of us. And the funny thing was, was you took all those 50 kids and you stuck them in a week where literally all they could think about were spiritual things because honestly, from the rule sheet that we got, that was about all we were allowed to think about. Uh, just to be completely honest, you go in any other direction, your brain starts going in any other direction, you bring a weapon, you bring a knife, you bring a girlfriend, significant other, whatever, you know, you were going to be in trouble or sent home, something like that. But it, it was really funny because after we got back from the last youth camp that I attended, it, it was the same thing. Everybody was on this, this spiritual high, the, this attitude and, and this energy that they felt flowed completely from God that after a couple of weeks was absolutely nowhere to be found. And that always baffled me. It always baffled me because there was something inside of me that said, that can't be what real revival is. That can't be what a real spiritual transformation looks like because a transformation means 
you were one way before the transformation, then the transformation happened, and then you are a completely different way after the transformation has occurred. And you don't go back because then it's not really a transformation. It's a different experience. Uh, Someone challenged me. Whenever I thought about my testimony, they said, don't just think about about a story. Don't just think about uh, how you got saved. But whenever you look at your life, think about defining moments. Think about times that a transformation actually did happen, how you were one way before the defining moment, then whatever happened, happened, and then you were a different way after that. And revivals are finicky things because for some people, they can be just their everything. For some people, that can be the difference between heaven and hell. For some people, that can be the difference between a a continuing life as an alcoholic and a life as someone who is completely devoted, sold out to Jesus. Revivals can be used as powerful tools. But if we as human beings, if we as people, are not mentally, spiritually prepared, then the revival is simply an event that comes, it happens, we feel great for a little while, and we basically live our spiritual lives from event to event. And the problem with that is whenever there's not an event coming up, we're kind of in that slump. Which is why revivals, quite honestly, are so successful around churches. Because people have gotten into this rut and they just need something. They just need somebody to lift them back up. And once they get that guest preacher, once they get that guest musician in here that's going to preach hellfire and brimstone the first night, that's going to preach forgiveness the second night, you know, you can, you can fill in your own little revival template there. Once they get finished with that, they almost, they come to it and they almost think, well, I'm going to be fixed. Spiritually, I'm going to be better. And we'll get a little bit more into that in just a second. Acts chapter 3. I want to tell you this story. I want to tell you this story. Take a look. We're going to be starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 3. Check this out. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. It was about the ninth hour. And a certain man who was lame from his mother's womb was carried and they laid him daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask for alms from those who entered the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention expecting to receive something from them. Now, it's important really quick before we continue with this story that we actually understand what beggar status actually was back in those days. Um, We think about uh, people who are homeless on the street, people who don't have a place to live, a solid fixed income or a a constant stream of income, and we feel like we, we, in our minds, we equate those to the beggars back in the Bible days. But that's not quite the way that it worked. Because this guy, you'll see here in just a second, his legs didn't work. And back in those days, if your legs didn't work, you didn't work. Therefore, you didn't make money, you didn't eat. I mean, it was pretty, it's pretty easy. They didn't have a disabilities act back in those days. Uh, you, you didn't work, sorry. Sorry. Uh, but this guy had, had people that were, that were willing enough to, to bring him to church. And if you're one of those people that, that picks kids up or that, picks people up and bring them to church, more power to you. I thank God for you daily because 
there are a lot of people, or there are a lot of very strong Christians who are where they are with God because someone was faithful enough to pick them up and bring them to church. Uh, the, the one that always sticks in my head is whenever I was, I was still living with my parents, we would, we would drive to church, and on our way to church, there would be a guy standing at the end of his driveway every single time we passed, standing there with his Bible ready to go. And, and I made the comment one time, I was riding with my dad, I made the comment one time, I said, well, somebody's ready to go to church. And dad said, yeah, and somebody's ready to pick him up and take him. And, and that always stuck with me. It always stuck with me. But the beggar was the same way. The beggar had people, friends who loved him enough to take him in to beg. And whenever people basically, for the most part, ignored beggars. Uh, whenever you talked to a beggar, it meant you were going to give him something. That's why the beggar gives Peter and John his attention. Because if somebody's going to say something to him, that means he's about to get something. And then Peter goes and Peter says, verse 6, he says, Silver and gold have I none. And you can almost feel the beggar's entire mood change because he's thinking, then why, why are you sitting here talking to me? Because I'm usually ignored. Now you're going to actually approach me. You're actually going to talk to me. Um, what, what's the deal here? Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I will give you. And then he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then before the beggar even gets the chance to think, Peter takes him by the right hand in verse 7, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. This is a man who's never walked before. This is a man who, and, and, and I realize, I realize that, that most of you can't relate to this, but this guy has never had feeling in his legs, never gotten up and walked, and then all of a sudden, uh, just a few short words, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and picks him up. And he feels the strength returning to his legs, so he did what any of us would do. He, leaping up, stood, walked, entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that this was the one who sat bagging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. They were filled with wonder. They were filled with amazement at what had happened to him. Now, look at verse 11. As the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, because after all, they're his heroes now. Um, they're the ones that have given him legs. They're the ones that have given him feeling. They're the ones that have allowed him to walk and leap. So he's going he's gonna to hang on pretty tight to them. He's going to hang with them for a while. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, and they were greatly amazed. And then when Peter saw it, I want you to notice this. Peter responded to the people, and he said, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Now, stop there for just a second. That's a name that everybody listening to Peter at this particular point in time, everybody at the temple, that is a name that all of them recognize. Reason being because a guy named Moses, uh, once upon a time, we don't have time to go there, but you can go look for yourself later. It's in Exodus chapter 3. Um, a guy named Moses is talking to God through a burning bush. And God tells Moses, go to Egypt. You're going to be my savior for the people. You are going to go and you are going to lead them out. That's going to be your job. And Moses starts coming up with all these excuses. And eventually, he gets around to the one where he says, but who am I supposed to say sent me? If I go to these people and I perform all these signs, I perform all these miracles, I do all these things that you told me to do, and they ask me, who sent me? 
what am I supposed to say? And God said, quite possibly one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible, God said, I am that I am. I am the one who is. You tell them, I am has sent me to you. He said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then he said some very monumental words. God said, this is to be my name forever. And in this way, I will be remembered throughout all generations. So whenever Peter uses this name, whenever Peter uses this phrase, they know who he's talking about. They know exactly who he's talking about. And look, he continues. He said in verse 13, that he glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up, denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and you asked that a murderer be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Whew, that's quite a message intro. Quite a message intro. And, and, and it's funny because, because we read this, and, it, and we don't understand, or a lot of us look past the fact that these people are within walking distance of where Jesus was crucified. They can walk to the tomb where everybody said that Jesus rose up from the dead. Okay? They can go, they can go see those things. They can go see those places. And for a lot of us, whenever we read the stories in the Scriptures, whenever we look at the Bible, uh, we tend to look at it with a, an almost fantastical lens. And what I mean by that is we tend to fantasize a lot of it. Uh, it give you an example. Uh, we think about David and Goliath. And immediately our minds go to, well, God can help me fight the giants in my own life. We go to Jesus calming the storm. And immediately our brains go to, God can help me calm the storms in my life. We go back to the book of Jeremiah. Whenever Jeremiah says that God said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. We immediately think to our future. And we think about the things that we have coming up. And we say, well, God's going to be with us as we go throughout our lives. And listen. All that stuff is true. All that stuff is very true. Those are very real principles of the person and the image of God. But we tend to look past the fact that all of those things actually happened. There actually was a giant. It wasn't just something that David had conjured up and worked up inside of himself that made it into a really big deal. Okay, there actually was a nine-foot-tall giant. There actually was a wall called Jericho that had to be knocked down. There actually was a storm for Jesus and the disciples. They actually were in danger. All that stuff actually happened. And when Peter says, we are witnesses of this, that's incredibly important. Because, you you see, and, and we'll get to this a little bit more here in just a second, the disciples, the disciples were so radical and so excited about who Jesus was because they had walked with him step by step. And they had physically seen him whenever he rose up from the dead. And Peter finishes out preaching this sermon. Peter finishes out and they end up, Peter and John end up getting arrested. Peter and John end up getting arrested. And you can, you can go back and, and you can read Read the actual account in its entirety uh, a little bit later. We don't have time. But uh, basically, uh, what ends up happening is the religious leaders uh, end up arresting them. 
And you can, you can turn to chapter 4. Look at verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. It says, The religious leaders laid hands on them. They put them in custody until the next day because it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Look at verse 5 of chapter 4. It came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, this is significant that Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts, by the way. Uh, this is significant that Luke goes through and he names these guys. And, and, and I'll tell you why here, here now, actually. You can go back through the Gospels. And again, we're not going to flip to all of them. But if you go back to each one of the Gospels and you read the individual accounts of the story of the trial of Jesus Christ, lots of these names that, that Luke just mentioned here, lots of these names are the same ones that were sitting there at the trial of Jesus. And you would think that with that kind of an audience, that Peter would have known who he was talking to and would have chosen his next words a little bit more carefully. But uh, Peter was a fisherman, not a preacher. So look at what he says. Whenever they ask him, by what power or by what name have you done this? Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he said to them, Rulers of the people, elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, and by what means he has been made well. What that means is if we just spent the night in jail for healing somebody, we'll we'll tell you what it's about. We'll tell you what it's about. Look at this, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one that you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the one which was rejected by you builders, which had become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, you can almost see, you can almost see this council, these men that have Peter and John on trial, you can almost see them shrinking back a little bit because this name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is one they've heard before because they were there when he was killed. They know that name. They know the trouble he stirred up. They know that they asked that a criminal Barabbas be released in his stead. They know that the body was misplaced or lost or stolen or whatever it was. They know that the body was there one day and then it was gone. And the stone was rolled away. They know something happened to it. They knew that Pilate's guards wouldn't keep quiet about it, so Pilate had him executed. Uh, That's another story. You You can turn back and read that in the Gospels as well. They'd heard this name before. And... And... That next verse in verse 11 is really cool because whenever Peter says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders who has become the chief cornerstone, that was a messianic prophecy. What I mean by that is that was one of those Old Testament prophecies that the Jews knew was talking about the Messiah. 
And whenever Peter takes that and relates it to Jesus, that just further solidifies the fact that Jesus was who he said he was, God's Son, the Messiah, the Christ. And that wasn't something they were very comfortable with. Because a teacher isn't any big deal. Okay, a rabbi, not a big deal. A a carpenter with some fishermen followers, not a problem. Not a problem. But whenever he goes around and starts claiming to be the Christ, we have a little bit of an issue. And just to be completely 100% honest, that same skepticism that they have towards or that they had towards Jesus, a lot of us would probably be the same way. I mean, just just to be honest. Because if we had been sitting there looking for a, a Messiah, the last prophecy that was prophesied about Jesus was 400 years before he actually uh, it was 400 years before he actually came to earth. If we had been sitting there waiting on this guy for 400 years, and then all of a sudden somebody shows up and says, "It's me." I mean, what do you think we're going to say? Okay, sure, uh, let, let's go with it. No, most of us are not. Don't think like that. Most of us are not that trusting. Most of us are not that believing. And and I think that's part of the reason that God uses the foolishness of the world to glorify himself. Because God does not desire that flesh be glorified. God desires that he be glorified. And look, uh, uh, let's move on. Peter says... There's not salvation in any other, but there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And look at verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. And they marveled. And then they realized that that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing beside them, they could say nothing against it. Go figure, right? You have, you have these followers that, that you realize that they're preaching about this carpenter, this God called Jesus, and you realize that they're for real because they've actually been walking with Jesus. They've actually been with him, and, and they remember that. And then you see the beggar who, quite honestly, a couple minutes before, was laying down there immobile by the gate that was called Beautiful, asking for alms, and now he's standing there next to them. I mean, what do you say? What do you say? Cool trick, guys. Good job. And you can't do that because they've already given Jesus credit for it. They've already given God credit. So now what they've done is put the religious leaders and the Pharisees in a position to have to do something about it. They're in a bit of a predicament here because, remember, they've had Jesus killed. And obviously they can't find him. I mean, he's not actually still in the tomb. But now they have to do something about it. And look, that's right, amen. Look at this. Look at this. They had commanded them to go aside from the council and they conferred among themselves. This is verse 15. We're in verse 16 now. They said, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a noticeable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on 
they can speak to no man in this name. Pretty good idea. Pretty good idea if you want to shut them up. Verse 18. They called them, talking about Peter and John, and they commanded Peter and John not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, that is up for you to judge. But we cannot but speak about the things which we have seen and which we have heard. Let me give you a quick little, quick little synopsis here about how religion works, okay? Religion, most world religions, what they have is they have one guy who claims to have heard a word from God who claims to know more spiritually than anybody else does. And he goes and he gives them a way to walk it out. It gives them a way to actually accomplish it, to get closer to God. Buddha and Muhammad are two very good examples of this. Okay, two guys that, that were born by natural means and claim to know more than anybody else does. And then they go and they give us ways to actually walk it out. They give us ways to actually get closer to God. And then what ends up happening is once they die, once they pass away, then the followers get together. And this is not Andrew. You can research this a little bit if you'd like to. Uh, once they die, their followers get together and they say, okay, how can we keep this going? How can we keep this alive? Because usually in their lifespan, most of them cannot amass a great number of followers. So uh, their, their followers get together, their disciples, and they say, okay, how can we keep this dream alive? How can we keep this vision alive? And then they figure out a way to do it. Usually it's through starting a church, starting a mosque, something like that. And they keep the religion going. Jesus' followers were completely different than that. Because after Jesus died, they all gathered together and they said, okay, now how can we keep us alive? Because they're about to come and get us. Because um, the, the, the carpenter guy that we were following, he stirred up enough trouble. And now... We, his disciples, are all that's left. Okay, and, and you remember shortly after the crucifixion of Jesus, whenever Jesus actually dies and they bury him, all of his followers, all of his disciples are huddled together in a little room together. And the Bible says that they're greatly afraid. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears in front of them. <laughs> what do you do with that? What do you do with that? And Jesus tells them, peace be with you. Okay. Uh, I mean, you think about how scared you would be if somebody you just saw died and then you saw them just right there after all the doors have been locked, all the windows have been closed, and he's standing right there and he says, peace be with you. It, is peace really what comes to the forefront of your mind? Is that really the first thing anybody thinks about whenever you think about that scenario? No. No. Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he goes and he continues to be with them. He continues to minister to them until he goes back up into heaven. And, and it's, really, it's really funny because we, we read about the early church. And, and we read stories like the one that we just got finished reading. And it, we, we see the way that the disciples acted, the way that the disciples behaved. We hear the old stories about the martyrs, about men and women devout followers of Jesus, who even in the midst of, of torture and turmoil would not renounce the name of Christ. And, and the reason 
The reason wasn't because of Jesus' miracles. It wasn't because of Jesus' teaching. It wasn't because he was just a great guy to be around. Okay? The, the reason... The reason that they were so energized and so revived, if you will, was because they had seen a dead man walking. And I've been saying for a while, I mean, you show me somebody that can die and then three days later rise from the dead, I'll go follow him. I'll go follow him. Okay, that's something that Jesus claims that no other world religion can. Because... The fact is, um, G.B. Hardy put it like this. He said, Buddha's tomb is occupied, Muhammad's tomb is occupied, Confucius' tomb occupied, but Jesus' tomb is empty. Is empty. Because Jesus is the only one who can claim resurrection from the dead. And the disciples that were so devout had actually physically seen him. Now, how does that relate to us? Because, uh, uh, quite honestly, um, none of us have seen Jesus physically. Uh, none of us have actually seen a, a guy die and then rise up from the dead. So, so how, does that, how does that relate to us? Well, the Bible says that we believe and that we are saved by grace through a, a little five-letter word that starts with an F called faith. That we're saved through faith. And, and it's really, it, it's always interested me what faith means to different people. Uh, Melissa and I took a trip to, to New Orleans a while back, and uh, this past week actually. And we, we got the chance to sit and talk with our hosts a little bit. And we, we were discussing religion, we were discussing spiritual things, and it was really entertaining, honestly. Because if we ever got to a hard question about what they believe, the nice generic cop-out answer was, it's a matter of faith. All right. And, and faith is something that, that you can have in, in just about anything. You can have faith in freedom. A lot of people have faith in that. You can have faith in your government. Not a lot of people have faith in that. You can have, you can have faith in, in your spouse. And, and what I mean by that what I mean by that is that is that it gets really easy. And for those of you that have been married for a while, uh, you know this better than I do. The only reason I know it is because is because a friend of mine who lost her husband shared this with me. Um, that it's very easy to lean on the faith of your spouse because if if they're the one who is getting your family up and getting them to church, it's really easy just to kind of ride along the coattails. But the problem is with all that stuff is that one day it goes away. And your faith, if that's what your faith is put in, it has no legs to stand on. And it falls. Because human beings, regardless of how strong and how willed we think that we are, every single human being has a breaking point. And rest assured, Rest assured, as you go throughout your days and as you go throughout your life, you will be pushed to it. And unless your faith is actually something that's real to you, 
you go past that breaking point. And all sorts of bad stuff happens. And, and, and what I mean by that, uh, Brother Michael posed the question whenever he first got up this morning and said, can you actually physically see a work that God is doing in your life? And if you can see that, awesome, great. Where faith comes in is when you can look back at your life and say, I see works that God has done time and time and time and time and time again. There's no question about getting me through this because He's done it before. That's where real real revival comes in. Because if you don't base it on a faith that has something to stand on, that has something to look back on, you are going to break. You'll get to that revival point. And it will eventually fizzle out. Because it is solely a faith based on emotion and an experience. And the reason that this story is so significant, or is those last couple of words that Peter says. He says we can't stop talking about the things that we have seen and the things that we have heard. That's why God has you doing stuff. That's why great works are done in you. To give you a chance. To give your faith something to stand on. Turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And the reason what we were just talking about, um, faith having a leg to stand on, I'm not just going to tell you that and then leave you without anywhere to go. Check this out. James chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 14. A lot of you probably have this memorized. James says this, What does it profit, brethren, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed, and be filled, but you do not actually give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? It doesn't help you, it doesn't help them. For you to just send them on their way. Thus also, verse 17, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Is dead. Is dead. Because if you simply have faith, and that's it, you're in a bit of a pickle. Because you're one of those, that, like Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, who's going to be blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Because unless your faith has something real to cling to and to stand on, actual revival doesn't really matter all that much. Because it phases out. James continues in verse 18. He says, But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? God gives you numerous chances to exercise and to activate your faith. And and God uh, likens your faith uh, to a tool. Uh, You can look back in Ephesians chapter 6 
whenever God's talking about the armor of God, or whenever Paul is writing about the armor of God, excuse me, inspired by God. And uh, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes, he says, Take up the shield of faith with which you can hold it and stand there and look pretty with it. No, that's not what Paul says. Uh, Paul doesn't say, take up the shield of faith so you can set it back down. Paul doesn't say, take up the shield of faith so you can bash the soldiers beside you with it. Paul says, take up the shield of faith so that with it you can quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. You see, the hardships in life that we go through are very often chances that God gives us to activate and to use to exercise our faith, to give us that solid leg to actually lean on, to give us something to stand on, so that at the end of the day, we can truly say, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Turn back just a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be starting in verse 13. And this is the chapter that's known known in lots of Christian circles, I guess, as the faith chapter, or as the hall of faith, as a lot of people like to refer to it. Verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 11. The scripture says, These all, now it's been talking about, about Abraham, about Isaac, about Jacob, about Sarah, and it says, These all, they died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But now... They desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them because of the strength of their faith, because they had something to lean back on. And I I read that, and I start thinking about it, and I think, wow, how often, how often have we gone through a situation in life and reacted in particular ways and made God ashamed to be called our God because of the way that we behaved and the way that we've gone through it. And uh, that's, that's not a question that I can answer for anybody. That's something I can only answer for myself. Just something to think about. Just something to think about. Revival, like anything else church-related, is to be used as a tool. It's to be used as a tool. And it's incredibly important that you prepare your minds and your hearts for revival. But more than that, more than that, revival gives you as a Christian a chance to take your faith to an entirely new level if you'll let it. This could be one of those defining moments. So this doesn't need to just be another experience that we go through and then we're all happy and joyful for a couple of weeks afterwards and then we're ready for the next revival. Because this tool 
absolutely has the chance to completely change your life. And you, you may feel like, like you're where you're at spiritually, like you have reached that point on your journey where you, you don't learn too much anymore. There's not a whole lot uh, that, that's new to you. Okay, expand the mind here a little bit. Because if you're still breathing, God still has a purpose for you. The fact that you are still alive on this earth, the fact that you are about to go through this revival in your church tells me and should tell you God has a very explicit purpose for allowing you to do so. And I encourage you to pray about that. Okay, Even if you don't necessarily figure out what it is until years down the road, approach it with the mindset that a great work is being done. And God has given you the privilege to be a part of it. In just a second, we're going to pray. I'm going to let Brother Norman come up and, and lead the hymn of invitation. We're going to have Brother Michael come up here and stand up at the front. And, and quite honestly, what I want you to think about is the week of revival that we're about to experience. And think about what your role is. It could be your role as far as how you're serving. It could be your role as a congregation member. It could be a, a support role, an, an encouraging role. That's something that only you, only you and God know. Only you and God know. But I'd encourage you to think about it. At least think about it. Because God has a purpose. God has a plan for it. And it, it, it's incredibly beneficial for us to open up our hearts, to open up our minds, and Make this a revival like Promised Land Baptist Church has never seen before. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings. Lord, thank you for, for the privilege that we have to come into your house and to adore to love on you. Because God, honestly, it, it's a pleasure to have a day completely devoted to worship of you. Lord, as, as we, we have this revival coming up, God, we know you already know that, but Lord, we, we pray that you would open up our minds, open up our hearts. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear what you would have us to see and what you would have us to hear. Because, Father, we desire for your will to be done in our lives. Because, God, no matter how many revivals we've gone through, no matter how many different emotional events we can recollect. Father, we, we acknowledge and we realize that this one has the chance to take our faith to an entirely new level. Father, I pray that in the coming weeks, Lord, that you would make our faith more real to us than it has ever been before so that we would have a leg to stand on. Father, we love you so much. Forgive us where we fail you. In your name we pray. Amen.